So typology is God-ordained, author-intended historical correspondence and escalation and significance between people, Adam, Noah, Abraham, and so yep. forth, yep. events. Uh, and here I would point to things like the Exodus or uh, you know, the, the exile and the, mm -hmm. the, the new Exodus, things like that. And then institutions and the institutions that I de deal with are the Levitical cult and marriage. And then this happens across the Bible's redemptive historical storyline, which is to say it takes place in covenantal context. Mm -hmm. So Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. Today is a book club episode, and we have Dr. James Hamilton Jr. back on our show, and he's going to be talking about his new book, Typology, Understanding the Bible's Promise-Shaped Patterns, How the Old Testament Expectations Are Fulfilled in Christ, and it is published by Zondervan Academic. So we're going to jump into that conversation here in a moment, but as always, reminder on the show notes, if you go to our show notes tab, link, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> you'll see some information on there. Of course, Zondervan has a link where you can hit and find this book for yourself and purchase it. There's also a local church finder link where you can type in your zip code and find the closest reformed churches to your area. And then there's also information about Santa, uh, Santa Ana Reformed Church Plant and how to contact Peter. And then how to become a bridge builder so you can help us bridge the gap and fund our show. And then, of course, information about how to contact us directly if you have any questions or comments or anything like that. And how to find us on social media and YouTube. So we'll jump in. I'll let Peter further introduce Dr. Hamilton. Yeah, if you guys listen to our episode. So it's funny for us. We recorded it in May, last May, but we didn't publish it until December when Lexon published his Psalms commentary, but we have him back on for his typology book from Zonervan. But James, Dr. James Hamilton is a professor of biblical theology at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's got a bunch of publications on his website. If you guys want to look that up, we are super excited and very humbled that you've come back on to our, our humble little show. Thanks for coming back on Dr. Hamilton. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Cool. Yeah. I mean, kind of since <laughs> everybody wonders too, and I saw a couple of comments on your Twitter, how on earth are you writing all these books, like two or three books a, a year that are substantial, that are 400 to a thousand pages, whatever you're saying, like, how, how do you do what you do? Well, this is deceptive. I mean, the, the Psalms commentary was really written between 2015 and 2018. Mm. And work was done on it prior to 2015. So, you know, I started putting words on the page in 2015 and was Got basically it. done in 18. And then there was a snafu with the, with the publisher. Um, Broadman and Holman had the series and they actually shut it down just huh. as I finished my manuscript, which was wow. sort of a harrowing experience. You know, I have this <laughs> nearly 1,000 page document on my computer and now the <laughs> publisher is telling me that they're not doing the series anymore. And so there was a time lag between um, the, the first publisher shutting it down and then Lexham picking it up. 
And then it had to go through Lexham's process. So the, you know, the route to publication was longer than normal. And that made it so I had time to write this other book uh, between completing that one and, and the Psalms commentary coming out. And then they almost came out at nearly the same time. <laughs> gotcha. So what you're saying is you, you don't have clones working for you. No. Other other Dr. Hamilton's no, doing your work. No spiders, no clones. Yeah. And, <laughs> gotcha. and you know, I spend plenty of time with my wife and kids and yeah. And we have a great life and I'm not just over here banging away on the keyboard all the time. So <laughs> gotcha. Well that's good. Cool. I mean, so kind of along those lines, tell we didn't I don't think we really got into this last time that we had you on, but tell us tell us a bit about yourself, some of your background, your work and uh, where your interest comes from when it comes to typology and gospel straight promises. Sure. So I grew up in Arkansas and actually um, was hoping to, to uh, pursue a career in baseball, but it became oh, yeah. that uh, God had not gifted me with the requisite skills. <laughs> but I did, I did have the opportunity to play for two years at the University of Arkansas and had a blast doing that. Um, when my baseball career ended, it allowed me to be an English major which was what I wanted to study, but because of the travel schedule of, you know, a college baseball team, yeah. our coaches would always say, don't take English in the spring because the English department took attendance. And if you took it, you know, <laughs> you're not doing well in the course because you're going to miss it much. So, um, so baseball ending allowed me to study English literature. And then um, uh, that love for literature, which I really got from, I got, you know, love for sports from my dad and, and I, I would say a work ethic from my dad. And my mom was, was an English teacher. So I got a love for reading and for literature from my mom. And um, I think that that literary approach really um, stayed with me as I began to study the Bible. And my interest in typology really just grows out of a desire to understand how the biblical authors are interpreting the scriptures. Mm -hmm. And um, when I came to Southern Seminary to study with Tom Schreiner, um, he sort of set me on, on a track that, that uh, had me pursuing, you know, uh, chasing people's footnote references, mm -hmm. <laughs> figure out how, how exactly are the biblical authors interpreting um, other passages of scripture, earlier passages of scripture. Mm. And um, and, and I found Earl Ellis, his, his little preface to Gopelt's book on, on typology mm -hmm. uh, so profoundly helpful. And um, that, you know, that, that pursuing that paper trail and, and those interests really led me to write mm -hmm. this book. Hmm. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. And maybe just, you know, to kind of get things started, just defining terms, typology, uh, asking you to define that because, you know, typology is an excellent tool on helping you read the Bible and understand it better. Once I've been introduced to it, it does, it does change a lot for the better. So maybe if you can explain uh, to the audience what typology is and maybe how it's incorrectly understood as well. Yeah. So I'll start with the incorrectly understood. I think people sometimes, uh, people sometimes have a vague sense that typology and allegory are hmm. uh, are the same thing, and and I think there there are there are ways in which what Paul does in the allegory in Galatians four yep, yep. that's somewhat similar to typology, uh, but allegory uh, pertains more to the assigning of a spiritual meaning to a material reality. Hmm. 
Now, I think that what Paul does in, in Galatians 4 is in keeping with what Moses intends to teach in the book of Genesis. So, I, you know, I think Moses means to show that by pursuing a child through Hagar, Abraham was doing something in the flesh by human power uh, that was attempting to bring about what God had promised to bring about by the power of his word. So I think Paul's allegory is in keeping with Moses' authorial intent, but typology is different from that. And, you know, sometimes um, when people talk about typology, um, they almost sound like this could be a reader response thing. Like if we see parallels or if we're clever enough to present things as though they're parallel, we can claim that we have a typological relationship here. Um, but my argument is that typology deals with things that are God ordained. So, you know, to go back from what's actually narrated in the scriptures, God ordained that there would be these parallels between these actual historical uh, incidents, events, or people, or institutions, and so forth. Uh, so typology is God ordained, and then author intended. Hmm. So God intended for, let's say, there to be parallels between Adam and Noah, and then Moses noticed those parallels hmm. between Adam and Noah, and then Moses intended to communicate to his audience those parallels between Adam and Noah and others. So typology is God-ordained, author-intended, historical correspondence, and here I'm talking about those parallels, mm -hmm. and escalation. So my point here is that as we move across the salvation historical storyline, the significance of these parallels increases. There is an escalation in significance uh, between um, um, the, the things that we're seeing so that when we first see this in Adam, we think, oh, this is, this is really significant for my understanding of the rest of the story. But then when this, this gets paralleled or repeated in Noah's experience, now we begin to think, okay, this stuff that I'm reading again, the author must mean for me to, to see some significance in this. And then if we see further parallels, that, that sense of importance just continues to escalate. So typology is God-ordained, author-intended, historical correspondence, and escalation and significance between people, Adam, Noah, Abraham, and so yep. forth, yep. events. Uh, and here I would point to things like the Exodus or, uh, you know, the, the exile and the, mm -hmm. the, the new Exodus, things like that. And then institutions. And the institutions that I de deal with are the Levitical cult and marriage. And then this happens across the Bible's redemptive historical storyline, which is to say it takes place in covenantal context. So all that, I mean, that's a mouthful, yeah. but uh, that's what I think technology is. Oh, oh yeah, good. that's helpful. Yeah, it's good. It's, it's real people, events, places, things versus like, it's not just a uh, vague metaphor of something yeah. that might point to Christ, but it's no, it's real yeah. people like Adam and Eve, Moses, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, it's real people pointing towards and events, like you said, marriage, uh, places, Israel po pointing towards actual fulfillment in Christ. So that's helpful. And you mentioned something, uh, stuck out as like author intended. Yeah. So that's kind of like a, um, hermeneutical question here. So is something, is it something you interact with, uh, that we expect going into the text 
or is it something that uh, the text already, like author intended, like you were saying, is already there? Yeah, are we, are we like placing categories on scripture that scripture is not inherently, like, doesn't have it inherently within it? Or is it already like coming out from the pages of scripture? We're just noticing that it's happening. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, I think, I, yeah, yeah, I think the latter. I think we're, yeah. we're drawing out meaning that the biblical authors intended to communicate. So, and really, this is just the golden rule applied to uh, the interpretation of texts. You know, when we we talk to each other, uh, we want to be understood in accordance Mm -hmm. with what we intend to communicate. And and if that's the way I want to be heard and read, then I should read and listen to others in that same way, particularly the biblical authors. And so I think this is in the text of scripture. And I think that... um, you know, just today, I, I did a search on the ESV, the word example, and there are a couple of different terms that the ESV renders example, uh, and one of them has to do with the tupas mm-hmm. uh, word group, which is where we get our word type. There's another term, hupa tupas, um, which has to do with, a, you know, a prototype or a model or a pattern. And then another term that gets used this, this way is the term hupadegma, which also points to like a model or a pattern. And so in my view, when the biblical authors use these terms, um, like for instance, when Peter says in 2 Peter 2, 6, that God made um, Sodom uh, and the cities that he destroyed in the, in the flood generation, an example of how he knows how to punish the ungodly, uh, what Peter's essentially saying is, uh, God uh, punished Sodom and then the flood generation as a type or as types uh, of the coming judgment of the wicked, the, the last judgment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before Peter jumps in, too, it's just I think something that's uh, really helpful in your book is you explain how we know this is true, how mm-hmm. we know it's author intended through typology, because if if the, if you didn't do the good job of explaining how we know this through chiasms, I don't even know if I said that right. But I know <laughs> how to spell it because I saw it all over and over and over in your book. Yep. Uh, chiastic chiasms. Uh, you explain how that helps structure and show the author intended type typology. Yes, indeed. Yes. So I think that we can see from the literary structure of, for instance, the book of Genesis, that Moses intends to put certain people uh, sort of in parallel. He intends for his audience uh, to see certain figures um, and, and to read them in light of one another. So that's a, it's a helpful, yeah, it's a helpful answer um, for how we see typology. It's helpful too, when we see the New Testament doing this as well, where they're not placing a lens on scripture that's not already there inherent within the Old Testament. What Moses is doing, what the prophets are doing, uh, what the latter prophets, the former prophets, what they're all doing. And so we, we see this in the apostles and Jesus himself. We're not bringing something to the text that's not already inherent within the text. Uh, but then you also kind of structure your book this way as well, where it's, it's structured in the sense that you're, you're kind of taking this model we see in scripture and then placing it in your, in your text, you're, you're both telling us how to do it, but within the, the scriptural text, but you're also showing us in the, in the sense that it's structured in a certain way. So can you go through a little bit of the structure of your book, how that helps us read your book and how that's been very intentionally designed based off what we see in scripture? Yes. So I love to do biblical exposition. And uh, when I exposit a text of scripture, when I preach, 
Um, I'm trying to make the main point of the passage, the main point of my sermon. Mm -hmm. And I would like also, if possible, to make it so that the structure of the passage is reflected in the structure of my sermon so Mm -hmm. that so that the literary structure of the text is reflected in how I've structured, you know, my uh, my trek through this passage. Um, Now, in this case, um, I was frustrated because there's Mm -hmm. no well it would be very difficult. It would take a long time and it would be a very long book if I were to try to exposit straight through, you know, Genesis <laughs> yeah. and try to deal with all the types that the biblical authors uh, treat. That would be yeah. a massive treatment. Um, and, and so initially I, I had as the structure of the book, just the topics of people, events, and institutions. But I was frustrated with this because it felt so topical and it felt so unnatural. Hmm. And then as I was reflecting on it, and I was really staring at the, you know, the list of topics that I had laid out, it occurred to me that I could, I could imitate the structure that the biblical authors employ by uh, building a chiastic structure into the contents of this book. And so that's what I wound up doing. And, and I found this so personally satisfying mm. because it allowed me to put, you know, often in a chiastic structure in the scriptures, what's at the very center of this chiasm, which the word chiasm comes from the Greek letter chi. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that looks like the letter chi looks like an X. Mm-hmm. So it reflects the way that you sort of work into the center and then you work back out uh, to, to where you started. Yeah. And it, this allowed me to put at the very center of the book. Uh, the discussion of the righteous sufferer, mm. and and for me that was that was uh, the most fun chapter to write, mm. and the chapter that that was perhaps most worshipful to write mm. for me. And then you know um, on either side of that, I have um, a chapter on prophets, and then a chapter on uh, the Exodus, and mm-hmm. I think those are related because it was a prophet Moses who led the people of yep. Israel yep. Uh, out of Israel at out of Egypt at the Exodus. And then uh, working out from that, I have a, a chapter on Kings um, corresponding to a chapter on creation. And, uh, you know, the King is King of creation. Adam mm-hmm. is King of creation. Christ will be King of creation. And then outside that priests matched by the, the Levitical cult chapter, and those naturally go together. And then outside that Adam and marriage. And I think this, this works because, you know, marriage is instituted in the garden with Adam. And then the first and last chapter um, deal with, with uh, micro level indicators of authorial intent in the first chapter, and then macro level indicators of authorial intent in the last chapter. And so I, I found structuring the book this way really uh, <clears throat> Yeah. And, and maybe attached to this too, uh, before we get to the next question, is so we're talking about this chiastic structure, this very intentional structure throughout scripture that's all throughout the Old Testament, is continued New Testament, bookending Genesis with Revelation with relatively similar concepts and themes. Uh, first Adam, last Adam. So what what are what are some kind of through lines that we see that are that are typologically linking different events, different people in scripture? We see this, we see this through line with like, oh, I see that same thing that I saw earlier, I see this that I saw later or before. So what, so what are, what are some of the through lines that we see? Okay. We can trace this through scripture. 
Well, I think one of the one of the big significant ones is this idea of, of what we might call corporate personality, or you might just refer to it as this dynamic between the one and the many. And I'm, I'm really referring to the way that Adam, the first Adam, um, the first man is is like the representative head of humanity as mm-hmm. Paul deals with him in Romans five. And then that that sort of developed as the the nation of Israel is referred to as God's son. So Adam is the son of God, and then the nation is God's son. And then the king from David's line, the Lord says in 2 Samuel 7, he will be a son to me. And then, of course, uh, you know, Christ comes as both the new Adam and the representative Israelite, and his corporate personality thing is at work. And then, um, you know, the, the church is uh, both the bride and the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. And and an, another aspect of this is this, this whole seed of the woman and seed of the serpent yep. theme, because there's a sense in which Jesus is the seed of the woman. And then there's another sense in which uh, everybody that belongs to Jesus can be referred to as seed of the woman. And this is the way that that John talks about believers in Revelation 12, mm-hmm. when the dragon goes off to make war on the woman and the rest of her seed. And mm-hmm. then those people are identified as those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Hmm. So, yeah, so there's, there's definite through lines. We're not just like making this stuff up. We're seeing this already in scripture. Yes, definitely. Yeah. We did a entire season um, on the covenant covenant theology and, typology is just so i think to get a good grasp on covenant theology you need typology amen i mean it it really helps bring this out um i had a a question that you kind of answered and it was more of uh maybe i can layer it for the audience um the intro and conclusion you talk about uh micro indicators and macro indicators what does that what does that mean how does that help with typology yeah so what what i'm really uh, pointing to are ways that we can know that the author intended for us to think of these two figures in light of one another and so one uh, the these are really the, the the features that the features of the text that, that allow us to establish that the author intended to create historical correspondence mm between different figures or different events. And those features are repeated words or phrases mm-hmm. or the quotation of whole lines and then the repetition of, of patterns of events. And so just to, to point to uh, some examples of these, you know, um, the, the line, um, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's, that's first stated in Genesis 128 with reference to Adam and Eve. And then it's restated with, with Noah in Genesis 9-1. And I think people, you know, they regularly notice this as they read through Genesis, but they don't necessarily see uh, the tandem between the quotation of the line and then the repeated sequence of events where in the same way that Adam, you know, took forbidden fruit and then uh, and sinned and then was exposed in his shameful nakedness, uh, so also Noah mm-hmm. uh, drunk from the fruit of the vine and then is exposed in shameful nakedness. And in both cases, blessings and curses follow. Mm-hmm. And, and so I would, I would argue that Moses means to present Noah as a new Adam. And then you have this repeated kind of fall mm-hmm. and in a sense, you know, after the flood, Noah, we can almost say is a new Adam in a new creation yep, yep. with a new covenant yep. and you have a new fall. And then, 
you know, the, the story is going to go forward from there. But this is setting up a situation where we, we look for and we notice these repetitions between these different characters across across the storyline. Yeah, maybe before Peter jumps in too, and, and you've obviously done a ton of research before writing this book. And then, uh, but like with any work, you learn more stuff as you dive in deeper. And that's the beauty of the Bible. We're always can, learning. Can I go so, back to the question? I, I answered part oh, of sure. it, not the other part of it. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I spoke there to the micro level indicators. These are oh, yeah, yeah. small level things. Macro level indicators would be things like what we see in the author of, in, in the book of Kings, hmm. where I think the author of Kings has really paralleled oh, the yeah. ministries of Elijah and Elisha. Mm-hmm. And, oh, yeah. and he repeated words and phrases and he set his narrative up so that you read these two in light of one another. And that's, I think that's, uh, the, I think the author of Kings is doing this to present Elijah and Elisha as a kind of installment in the pattern of Moses and Joshua. Mm-hmm. And then I think Malachi comes along and I think Malachi understands the Moses Joshua thing and he understands the Elijah Elisha thing. And he, he then um, prophesies of the Lord sending a messenger before the Lord himself comes. And it's almost like we're going to get a new kind of uh, Elijah Elisha thing, but this time it's going to be well, I mean, the way it plays out, it's John the Baptist and Jesus mm-hmm. who come in fulfillment of this pattern. So that that macro level uh, indicator that I'm pointing to would be the literary structure of Kings and the way that the author has created these parallels between Elijah and Elisha. Hmm. Yeah. Very Nick nice. was just so yeah. excited to ask his next question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Sorry, sorry for that interruption. No, yeah. thank you for stopping me because uh, yeah, we, yeah, those yeah. are those are two huge categories, and I'm yeah. assuming a lot of people come into the Bible either don't have or don't know about. Yeah, yeah. So uh, what I was saying also was just you know obviously you knew a lot going into this work in this book, and then like like with anything about the Bible, you learn more as you're diving in deeper. Yeah. So was there any moment when you were researching this book and writing it that you had like a huge aha or the hairs on the back of your neck stood up kind of moment where you're like, wow, I didn't, I don't think I really saw that before. That's amazing. Some, some kind of moment like that. Yeah, absolutely. Many, many times when uh, my, my skin felt all tingly in response (laughs) to what I, what I felt like I was seeing uh, in the text. And, and in addition to the Elijah, Elisha one that I was just talking about, which Mm -hmm. I mean, when I, when I began to sort of put those things together, I, I felt to myself like my my own mind was being blown by the <laughs> yeah yeah of what I'm seeing in the scriptures, yeah. but I think you know a minute a moment ago I I was talking about how the the chapter on the righteous sufferer mm-hmm. is at the center of the book, and and how that was so worshipful and really for me, um, studying Isaiah 53 and and seeing the way that Isaiah is is creating resolution within his own book, within, within the book of Isaiah, and, and forging connections with things that have been said earlier, and also the way that he is picking up on earlier patterns mm-hmm. and alluding to earlier narratives. Mm-hmm. And I think really doing a kind of, I mean, the subtitle of this book has to do with promise-shaped patterns. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I really think that, that um, uh, Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 53 is a promise-shaped pattern. There are promises from earlier scripture that have shaped his understanding and that have really shaped the way that he's 
he's doing a kind of typological prophecy there in Isaiah 53. And, and before, before all this came together in my own uh, thinking and study, I, I, would, I would sometimes look at that chapter and think to myself, how did Isaiah get to these conclusions? Mm. And, and what was Isaiah thinking about? At what, you know, what did he know? What did he not know? Uh, because it, 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 it so perfectly matches what happens yeah. with the, Jesus on the cross. But as, as, I've, as I've studied and written and worked on this project, I've really become convinced that these patterns from earlier scripture are informing Isaiah at a deep level so that mm. things that happened to Isaac and things that happened to Joseph and things that happened to David, uh, this is all playing mm. into what Isaiah is presenting there in Isaiah 53. Yeah. And I think, yeah, it, it doesn't necessarily change the meaning of scripture. It just deepens it. It broadens it, which, yeah, some of the, I think we're, we're, too, we're too often looking at prophecy where it's just purely future, that there's just this new idea that they came up with and they had divine revelation, which in some cases could be true. Um, but then a lot of these, like you said, which you don't really think about until you actually ask the question, how did Isaiah come up with these things? Yeah. Um, but like you say, it's, he's noticing patterns and he's saying that there's, there's a righteous suffer to come because we've yeah. seen righteous suffers before him. We're going to see the ultimate righteous suffer to come yes. after. So it just, I mean, it, it broadens the message further than I think we've, we've, we've ever really been exposed to um, yes. with some of this stuff yeah. as well. Can I just give one little teaser taste? Yeah, do it. We're talking about. So, you know, in Isaiah, the birth of the child is really significant. Isaiah seven fourteen, you know, Emmanuel, Isaiah 9, 6, to, to us, a child is born. And then Isaiah 11, 1, you know, a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. Yep. And here it's interesting how Isaiah, he, um, he's sort of using this metaphor of the growth of a tree to talk about the birth of the Messiah. Clearly, I think when he speaks of the shoot coming from the stump of Jesse. And then later there in Isaiah 11, he says that the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And in Hebrew, uh, the term used to speak of the nursing child is this term yonaik, which refers to a suckling child, you know, a child who's, who's being nursed at mm -hmm. his mother's breast. And then that same term is used to speak of these sort of sucker shoots that come up mm. out of the of trees. So in Isaiah 53, 2, when um, Isaiah says he grew up bef uh, he grew up before us like a young plant, he uses the same term, yonake, that he had used in Isaiah 11, verse 8, to speak of the nursing child playing by the hole of the cobra. So, <laughs> you know, the, the, the suckling child mm -hmm. in Isaiah 11, 8, is, is the young plant in Isaiah 53 too. And that kind of connection, I think really establishes along with this idea of, you know, from the root of Jesse, uh, like a, the, the term shoresh there mm -hmm. in Isaiah 11 is the same term used to describe the root out of dry ground in Isaiah 53. So you have these verbal connections that are really establishing that this, this suffering servant in Isaiah 53 is the king prophesied in Isaiah 11. Mm. So within his own prophecy, you know, he's establishing these connections. And then when we, when we look at this in the broader canonical context, uh, then we see uh, these points of contact with the figures that I mentioned a moment ago, Isaac and Joseph and Moses and David, uh, that, that really uh, begin to point forward to yeah. the way that Christ brings fulfillment to all of this. Yeah, that's, yeah. So it's intentionally designed um, highly structured, not kind of the, 
the broader kind of con- or the broader world who thinks look, they look at the Bible as like, oh, just a bunch of like uneducated people writing this and randomly haphazardly put this together. No, this is this is really intentional, highly structured. You can read this and see, oh my gosh, they're they're doing some things we did not expect. Uh, and so this this promised Christ, this promised anointed one to come, um, they they saw pretty clearly. They 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 knew he was coming. Um, yeah, they may not have known his name, but they knew they knew he was they knew he was coming. Um, so actually, your what you just brought up is I think helpful for this next question too. Um, so you you're, you're you as we are are big. You're a big proponent of the biblical languages for people like using these pastors using these professors using these. And so I'm assuming those who come into this with some biblical languages, I can come into this with some biblical languages. Um, maybe maybe some help for them, like how how do you use some of these resources that we're, that we're learning as as it comes to typological links within Scripture, and then also those without kind of the, the help of biblical languages, how how can they come to if they're just looking at the English Bibles and say, okay, how can I do this without without some of these extra helps? What what counsel would you give both of those groups? Yeah, so uh, first to the to those who can use the biblical languages. Um, I hope that what I've written will have the same um, impact upon you that reading someone like Stephen Dempster has upon me. Mm, yep. And I, I know Stephen Dempster personally, so so I'm going to share a little anecdote about him. Yeah, he wrote uh, Dominion Dynasty for those who don't, uh, which is just that's a, a great book. Yeah, yeah goldmine of a book. Yeah, and and um, a few years back at ETS, um, someone sort of sort of alerted me to the fact that uh, Professor Dempster had recently memorized Psalm 119 in Hebrew. Oh my gosh. And, and when, I, when I heard that, I thought to myself, his writing reads like someone who memorizes and meditates uh. on the scriptures in the original languages. And, and not long ago, I read a dissertation actually on Second Peter's uh, use of the old, or the use of the Old Testament in Second Peter, uh-huh. and, and I commun- I really appreciated what the student did. He did really close, sound, solid, good exegetical work. And I said to the, I wrote to the student on my copy of his dissertation, um, reading your work makes me, or, or you know, reignites in me a desire to memorize the scriptures in the original languages. Thank you for that. So I hope that that uh, for those who have access to the biblical languages. Uh, my book will make you want to study the text in Greek and Hebrew more. Mm. For those who don't have uh, Greek and Hebrew, um, I hope that that reading this will actually alert you to the the grammatical structures in English. And so maybe you know, maybe you're someone like my wife who 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 did seminary and and took Greek, but has not continued with Greek. But my wife is an astute student, and it's like she learned um, Greek grammar, and she remembers those categories. And so recently, we were in a small group Bible study, and we were looking at, uh, I think it was something in the Sermon on the Mount. And my wife said to me, as you know, I was leading this Bible study, this group of people, and she said, that participle there, is that participle modifying the main verb and, <laughs> and, and sort of fleshing out the meaning of the main verb? And, I, you know, that hadn't even occurred to me. I was looking at <laughs> these people and I start looking at it and then I glance at the Greek text and I'm like, you're exactly right. So, <laughs> so I hope that, you know, reading this book will help you to pay attention to English grammar and help you to see things that are there reflected in English grammar that are true even about 
the, the text of, of the original. So, um, uh, you know, bottom line for both groups of people, I hope this will play, help you to inspire you to pay closer attention to the biblical text as you read it and memorize it and meditate upon it. Hmm. No, that's, that's good. Maybe, so kind of the last, last two questions as, as we land this, and if there's anything else that Nick wants to ask. Um, so you've already talked through some of these things, but my assumption after reading or listening to this, some listeners 30, 40 minutes in are like, oh, this is sounding pretty good. They may be already convinced that maybe I should buy this book. Help me, help me read scripture better. Um, yeah, figure out sermons or Bible studies, whatever it may be. Uh, but what are, what are some things, <clears throat> maybe some, some exegetical gems that people can be looking forward to where they say like, you know what, that's not what I expected to see. Or I did not expect to see that connection between this event and this event or this person and this person. What, what are some like little things you can throw out and say like, you know what, this, th- these are some of the things you can expect from this work and kind of move on from here as well. Well, I hope that, um, you know, even in something like John 13, when John uh, quotes um, the Psalms and he says, this took place to fulfill what was written in the Psalms, uh, the one who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And, and I don't know if you've ever had the experience of kind of looking back at that psalm and thinking to yourself, how is this fulfilled in Christ? Mm-hmm. And, and I hope that this, this typological um, way of thinking will help you to see that David is talking about his own experience, and then he's, uh, he's also expecting that experience to be repeated and fulfilled mm-hmm in the life of the one that God promised to raise up from his line. Um, similarly, I don't know if you've ever looked at Hebrews 2, and, and you know the author of Hebrews quotes Isaiah 8, this line, behold, I and the children whom God has given to me. And the author of Hebrews is presenting this as something that's fulfilled in Jesus, who didn't have any children. You know, <laughs> So mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you've thought to yourself, how, well, how is the author of Hebrews thinking about this? Mm. And, and how is Isaiah, uh, what, what, is there a real author intended point of connection between Isaiah and his children and and his experience and what the author of Hebrews is talking about between uh, Jesus and the followers of Jesus. And so, you know, I'm not going to spell out that connection here because I want (laughs) to read the book. And, and I hope that, that um, um, this, this way of thinking will really enable people to be confident that when the new Testament authors quote the old Testament, they're getting it right. Mm. And, and they're actually doing this in accordance with what the Old Testament intended to communicate. Mm. And, you know, when you think about it, in many cases, like in the book of Acts, um, Peter, Luke is presenting Peter and Paul trying to persuade people to believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. In order for that argument to work, those people listening to Peter and Paul have to be convinced, yes, that's actually what the Old Testament mm-hmm. was talking about. And, and I, I think that what I'm, what I'm arguing shows um, what Luke is presenting Peter and Paul intending to communicate to those people to hmm. prove to them that, that what has happened in Christ is indeed what the Old Testament was talking about. Hmm. No, that's, that's, yeah, that's extraordinarily helpful because I think we're, we too often look at the way the New Testament's using the Old Testament and they say, oh, they must be adding meaning to this. They must be finding something that's not already in the text. Um, that's not already obvious. They like they must have gotten some knowledge that we don't have, uh, where they see these connections. But all they're doing, what you're saying in the book, and you show some of these examples, they're noticing what's already there, and they're just expositing to them, and they're like, "Oh yeah, that makes sense," because it's it's already this it's already this shaped thing, this typological link within the Old Testament. The Old Testament uses itself 
And then they're just noticing what's already happening and saying this points to Christ because that's what that's that's just what that is. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Well put. Yeah, I don't know, Nick. If you have anything else to add, or Dr. Hamilton, anything else to add either? Yeah, I, I, I think this conversation was great to introduce to the audience if they haven't heard before how typology does such a great job explaining scripture with repeated patterns. Um, I think a lot of the audience um, would might start to think, okay, this this does a great job explaining scripture with scripture, right? With the chiasm and all that. Uh, now, could typology also help us understand things that have not happened yet? So I do think that in the book of Revelation, um, John is using the Exodus pattern to point forward um, mm. to, the, to the way that the final, uh, you know, redemption from our bondage to corruption is going to, uh, to take place. So that doesn't mean we're not going to be surprised by the way that, that things play out. But I, I think if we, you know, if, if we know the patterns and we know the promises, I think when we see these things come to pass, we'll have this, we'll probably, our skin will be tingling, you know, the hairs on the back of our neck <laughs> and, and we'll be in awe. But I think we'll also have this sense of, well, of course, hmm. of course, that's the way that God would do it, because this is what he did hmm. at creation. And this is what he did at the Exodus. And this is what he did at the return for at the new Exodus and return from exile in Christ. So naturally, this is the way it would happen. Hmm. You know, I, I think that that uh, there's a sense in which we will be surprised, but we'll be surprised with things that look like home, that hmm. look like what we've read in the scriptures. Hmm. Ooh, that's a good quote. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, I don't know. Dr. Hamilton, is there anything we missed that you want to bring out? Anything that you want to you want to let the audience know? I'm happy. You know, I'm I'm just really thankful. I can't believe I get the opportunity to study the Bible and talk about it and write mm-hmm. about it. So, uh, I hope that other people will benefit from and enjoy uh, the, the the coming to know God through the Scriptures and then living for God in response mm-hmm. to the Scriptures. That's good. Yes. As we end this, as we end this out, so where can people find you? Where can they find your work? And then is there anything that you're up to that people can be looking forward to in the future? Yeah, so I don't, I, I have a, a weblog and um, the, the address is jimhamilton.info. Uh, I don't do, I don't blog a lot anymore, but uh, a lot of my published articles and essays are there. And, and I'm talking about journal articles and book chapters, those kinds of things. Uh, they're also on an academia.edu page that, that I can be found at, mm-hmm. Twitter at Dr. Jim Hamilton. Um, so, and then, you know, um, I'm part of the Bible Talk podcast, so we're okay. just having expository conversations as we work our way through yep. the scriptures. And then um, um, Kenwood Baptist Church, where I preach, we have a, a podcast that mm. if people want to check out sermons. Um, and then things that I'm working on, uh, right now I'm preaching through the book of Exodus. Uh, with Bible Talk, we're almost to the end of Numbers, starting into Deuteronomy. We're just okay. marching through the scriptures. Yep. And then um, with writing projects... I'm, I'm working on a book on how to read the Psalms. It's a little short book, a huh. uh, little introductory book. And then after I finish that, Lord willing, I'll turn to a book on the theology of the gospel of John. Hmm. So, nice. Yeah. Well, we'll link to the, some of those things in the, in the show notes. People can go find the podcast, go find the church, go find your work and blog and all that stuff. And uh, looking forward to the, some of the stuff that you have coming in the future. So I'd love to have, have you back on for, for some of those things as well. But as we usually do too, uh, if you guys head on to our Twitter. So this comes out on Thursday. So tomorrow after this comes out, we'll have, we'll give away courtesy of Zonervin, uh, a copy of typology. So if you guys go to guilt grace pod, 
our Twitter. And I think it'd also be on Instagram as well. If you guys go retweet it and share it and follow us, then you guys will enter in for a chance to win this book for free. So you guys can read this, read the Bible and be a better student of scripture, see Jesus through all of scripture. So thanks for coming on, Dr. Hamilton. It's been a pleasure and we hope to have you on again soon. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. Hey, y'all, this is Peter Bell, one of the co-hosts of this podcast. We started a Bible study in Santa Ana under the oversight of Oceanside United Reformed Church. We've got a growing group of people from a wide variety of backgrounds with the hope and prayer that we will plant a church in Santa Ana this summer. If you're looking for a church that preaches the gospel every week and has close-knit fellowship, contact us at SantaAnnaReformed at gmail.com or find the link in our show notes to be added to our list. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed that episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And we, as we've said before, we are bridging the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. So we would like to make sure this is enjoyed by others around the world and how to best do that is rate and review us on itunes yeah and you after you rate a review or instead of rate and review or doing everything all in once retweeting us on twitter liking us on twitter liking us on instagram following us on both of those platforms because that actually puts in front of people's physical face this podcast these guests and most importantly, the gospel, the doctrines uh, that these guests are, are bringing in front of you guys. So please do that. It helps get in front of more people. Amen. And hopefully you guys are part of a local church and you're tithing. And uh, after that, after tithing, if you have any means left over, please consider donating to us to make sure our bridge is well paved and maintained and strong and sturdy as again we bridge the gap to reform christian <laughs> theology exactly the yeah and you guys can find that link on anchor our official anchor website if you just go on um, our social media links it'll it'll link you to that website it's also at the bottom of these this podcast show notes if you're on this podcast this specific episode scroll all the way to the bottom of that show notes and you guys will find a link for this for three different options of donating so we hope you guys can help us bridge the gap pay for shipping get nicer stuff all for the focus of spreading the gospel further yep all for the kingdom of god thanks so much guys we'll see you guys next time